I forgot to say this earlier. If this is your first time at New Spring, we have a gift for you. And when you came in, you got something that looks like this. <laughs> I love it, thinking about people's first visit at New Spring. Um, and, and we just want you to know how much we appreciate it. We know there are a lot of great churches, and, and for you to spend your weekend at this crazy church really means the world to us. So when you came in, you got this. If I get boring in the talk today, just put whatever information you're comfortable with on this and bring it to guest services. There's a big one out in the lobby and a little one back by the coffee shop. We have a gift bag for you. promise you, no strings attached, attached. We just want to give you a gift. And so please come by and receive that gift from us. Also, too, you heard in the announcement, we're having a watermark weekend, which is a baptism celebration on, I think, the 24th and 25th of this month. And this is the last weekend to sign up for it. If you want to go public with your faith, if you've accepted Christ and you'd like to take that step, you can let us know. Even now, it's not too late. You can just check the, check the box and give it to one of the First Impressions people on your way out. And we'll get you situated and set up. For many of us, our baptism was done by our parents, and we never had an opportunity to have a vote in it. So if you want to go public with your own personal faith, you, you want to sign up for Watermark. That'll be coming up in a few weeks. Those are always extraordinary celebrations. Now, here's the thing. All of us have valuable people in our lives, and it's hard for us sometimes to measure the value of this person. For instance, I don't know who's most valuable in your life, and I don't know, and actually I guess maybe this is the right way to say it, I don't know who has loved you the most, but how can you measure the worth of that person in your life? The only way I can think of is to help ask you to help me do an experiment. I want you to think right now about the one person, and I'm not talking about God now, I'm just talking about people in your life. The one person who loved you more than anybody else in the world. Who is that person who loved you or loves you more than anyone else in the world? Now, with the best you can do with your imagination, back that person out of your life. Imagine you had never met that person. Imagine you never knew them. What would happen if the person who loved you the most had never been present in your life? On the other hand, or, or in addition to that, Let's just take the people, that little circle of people who have loved you the most in your life, back them out of your life. For me, that's very easy because the first person I think about is Mary Alice, my wife. We've been married for many years. We've known each other even longer. Mary Alice and I met in high school. We went to junior high school together. We didn't know it at the time, but we both went to the same junior high school. Now, Mary Alice always tells a story about this. She says she knew who I was in junior high. And uh, she said that the first words I told her were, be quiet. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I was assigned to monitor the instrument room in the band hall, and she said at the end of the day, she came in to get her clarinet. It was on the top shelf, and she asked a friend to help her, and, and I had my nose in a book, and I said, be quiet. She said, those are the first words I ever said to her. But I think that's apocryphal. I don't think that really happened. But we did meet in junior high and begin dating. We dated for five years to my senior year in college. But I met her when I was 16 and she was 14. And so it goes so far back, uh, I cannot imagine life without Mary Alice. What a, what a different world my life would be without her if I'd never met her. And she's shown love to me every day of our marriage and every day of our relationship. So if I want to think about what life would be like without her, it would, it would change dramatically. Then I think about my mom and my dad. Many of you know my dad went to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago. And I know that some of you have parents who did not love you. Some of you actually had parents who abandoned you. And God forbid, there are some whom I've met here at New Spring. Your parent abused you. And I am very sorry for that. My heart breaks. But in my particular case, 
all thanksgiving be to God. I had two parents who loved me very much. And they always showed that love for me. And if I back them out of my life, my life is a very different, very different life. I have three sons. And I've been very fortunate that all three of my sons have shown me respect and kindness and encouragement. And I was talking to one of my sons yesterday, and I didn't feel too strong about the message. And I thought, I didn't do a very good job. And my son told me, Dad, it was awesome. Here is the thing that I know about my life. If I back the people out of my life who love me the most, three things become real. Number one, my world shrinks and shrivels to a very dark place. Do you feel that today? If you think about the person or people who've loved you the most, if you could find some way to back them out of your life, if they had never lived, if you'd never met them, if you'd never known them, your world would shrink and shrivel to a very dark place. The second thing I realized is I would be a very different person than the person I am today. I'm not real crazy about myself. I never seem to quite measure up even to my own expectations. And I know I always come short of God's expectations for me. So I'm not crazy about the person that I am. And I'm, I'm trying and I'm working in my prayers that I can grow like the first series of this year. But I do know this. I am what I am by the grace of God. And I am also what I am because God's grace has brought people into my life who love me. And if they were not there, I would be a very different person than I am today. In fact, if it had not been for my parents, I don't want to know who I would be today. If it had not been for the love of Mary Alice, I don't even want to know who I would be. If it had not been for the encouragement and love of my sons, I don't know. I don't want to know what I'd want to be today. And beyond that, the hundreds and hundreds of friends that God has brought into my life. I would be a totally different person. And now work with me for a moment. And I've asked you to join me. I've asked you to help work with me on this sermon. And I'm going to also ask you to keep an open mind. Because here's the thing. You know, a lot of people today are living on Mars. I started last week's talk by saying, this is a crazy world that thinks it's sane. This is an upside-down world that thinks it's right side, right side up. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to approach you with right-side-up thinking. Well, it could be that when if you're in an upside-down world, you hear right-side-up thinking, you can think what I'm going to say to you is upside-down, and you could close your ears, and unfortunately, you could miss out on one of the greatest, if not the greatest, truths that you could ever encounter. But here is the thing that I want to say to you today. If it had not been for the people who love me, if it had not been for me, I'm convinced of this. If I had never known Mary Alice there would be a Mary Alice-sized hole in my heart. And you know I'm not talking about the pump in my chest. I'm talking about my psyche, my inner person. If I had never known Mary Alice, there would be a hole there in my life commensurate with the size of her love. If I had never known my parents, there would be a huge hole there. There would be a vacuum. There would be a gap. There would be a dearth that would be the size and shape of the love of my parents. If I had never gotten to know my children, there would be a hole in my life that would be the same size as the size of their love. What if you'd never known the people who love you the most? If you've engaged in this at all, my guess is you've come to the same conclusion that I've come to is that it's almost too painful to talk about. Well, today I want to talk about knowing somebody, and I want to talk about what a different person you and I would be if, if, if we didn't know him. And beyond that, I'm going to talk about what a hole he leaves if we never get to meet him. Our series is Living on Mars. And we talked, as I said a few moments ago, about how today sometimes we almost feel like we must be living on Mars because the crazy things that people tell us with a straight face just seem so peculiar. I also shared with you last week that there's a group of people who are part of a Dutch nonprofit called Mars One that are planning a Mars trip. A Mar Actually, they're, <laughs> I say trip. That's a, mis that's a misstatement. They're, they're planning to go to Mars in 2022 
they're planning to start the first colony on Mars. And as I shared with you last week, the only problem is there's no return trip. But thousands and thousands, 100,000 people or so have signed up to go on this Mars trip. And even the experts are saying the problem with living on Mars is life isn't sustainable there. Scientists are talking about maybe the possibility of some sustainable life, but even the best and most optimistic scientists are telling us that life there would only be brief, it would be underground, and it would require huge artificial life support. But I want you to understand that life isn't sustainable on this planet either. Because even if we live for 70, 80, 100 years, we're not going to be here forever. But you know, of course, if you were here last week, that I'm not talking about the planet Mars. I'm talking about a hill in Athens, a place called Mars Hill, where once a great Christian leader went and shared the good news of God to a group of people who were the most intellectual people, uh, the most erudite, the most accomplished people of his generation. And I will be the first to tell you that the Greeks impressed me more than any other ancient culture. In fact, many ways of thinking that we have today. In fact, our government, to a large extent, is a product of the Old Testament and, and Greek thinking. The Greeks were very bright people. But unfortunately, with all their intellectualism, they were unable to figure life out. And so they would collect in this place called Mars Hill, and they would try to sort it out. And if you were here last week, we read the whole story. And the idea was that all these intellectual people collected on Mars Hill for one purpose, and that was to hear the latest thing. Why would they gather to hear the latest thing, and why do we in America always look for the latest thing? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Even all they had learned, with all they had learned, they weren't satisfied yet. Well, as we said last week, and we closed out the message this way, we said all of us have a choice, just like the Athenians had a choice. We can either SFC, we can settle for confusion, or we can search for clarity. And today we're going to begin that search for clarity because as Paul opens his mouth and begins to speak to these intellectuals, he begins to talk about one thing, and it's going to frame our discussion here today. And let's just read this together, Acts 17, verse 22. He said, people of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Well, the clue there was they had 30,000 gods. Everywhere Paul walked in the city of Athens, every corner, every niche, there was some pedestal with an altar or a bust of some god, 30,000 gods. That's a bunch of gods. And Paul said, hey, look, man, you people are very spiritual. I won't take that away from you. They, they were supernaturalists. And Paul said, I, I perceive that you're very religious, for as I passed by or passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown god, blank. We don't know his name, we don't know her name, we don't know their name, just to a God we don't know. And Paul said, I want to tell you about the God you don't know. Now I find it interesting that the most intellectual people of the day had a blank where it came to knowing the true God. This is probably more than you want to know, but there was a story behind this unknown God in the 6th century B.C., the Athenians had had a plague that wouldn't go away, and they tried all sacrifices to their gods, and someone suggested they send for a prophet from the island of Crete named Epimenides. And Epimenides came to Athens, and he said, evidently, you've offended some god who you don't know. And so they, and there's more to the story, but at the end of the day, they just erected an altar to this unknown god. And Paul, who does know the true God and realizes these people don't know the true God, and he realizes the three things that we talked about, that 
You know, if you don't know the true God, well, then your life shrinks and shrivels to a very dark place, and you're a very different person than you would be. And most of all, just as if I didn't know Mary Alice, there would be a Mary Alice-sized hole in my life. Paul knew there was a God-shaped hole in all their lives. And so he said, I want to tell you about the God that you do not know. Well, this is really important when we think about unknown God because right up front, it, it challenges a lot of cosmopolitan 21st century thinking. Because we live in an age today where a lot of people have the idea, and you may even have this idea, that the true God, if there is a true God, and most of us believe there is a true God, but we believe, many of us, that the true God is sort of behind every sincere worship system. That no matter what sincere pathway people take, behind the curtain is the real God who will step out at some, at some point and say, it's me. If you're a Buddhist, then it's me. The real God steps out. If you're a Hindu, the real God steps out and says, it's me. And if, even if you're a, a, a very sincere non-theist who tries to treat your neighbors right, you get to heaven and God steps out and says, it's me. Behind any sincere worship that there is the true God. That's sort of the way of thinking today. And yet Paul, right out of the box, challenges this because these people had 30,000 gods and they were very sincere in their worship. And yet Paul said, the problem is, you don't know the true God. Do you know God? I'm not asking you, are you religious? I've been religious without knowing the true God. I'm not even asking you, do you go to a Christian church? Because I think there are many people who go to Christian churches, and you and I have met some of them. I don't think they know the true God. I'm not asking you, are you a good person? Because compared to me, you're probably a wonderful person. But my question for you is, do you know the true God? See, here's the thing. I challenge you to think about the person who loved you the most, and I said, if he or she wasn't in your life, your life would shrink and shrivel to a dark place. You would be a different person, and there would be a hole. Well, here's the thing. Nobody loves you as much as God loves you. I was greatly loved by my mom and dad, but God loves me more than my mom and dad. My wife loves me, but God loves me more than my wife loves me. My kids love me, but God loves me more than my kids love me. And beyond that, God can be present in my life in ways that the other people who love me can't. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have had surgery? If you've had surgery, you know what that's like. You go to the hospital, you prepare for surgery, then, you know, sort of everybody can kind of greet you there in the waiting room, and then you go into the room to prep for it. Maybe they'll let your wife or husband come in, or maybe a good close friend. Maybe one or two people get to come in and wait with you while you're in, in surgery prep. But then there comes the moment when, you know, all the medical personnel come in and say it's time to go. And, and, and the people who are with you there, maybe your husband or wife or your best friends or your parents or kids, you know, they get to that door and they say, you know, they'll say, no, he or she will be out in just a little while. If you've ever been at that moment where you've had to wave goodbye to all the people that, you know, that love you very much, you actually got to go to the door with you, you know what it's like to then go into surgery and you're thinking at that moment, if you know the true God, God, I'm so thankful that you can go with me past this door. Do you know the true God? Or maybe we need to ask a more basic question. Can you know God? For so many people, God is an impersonal force. Is it possible for you to know God the way you know your best friend? Is it possible for you to know God the way you know your wife or husband? Well, I think from Paul's statement here in Acts 17, it's possible to know him on even a deeper level. 
But what he has to do, and this is, this is more history than I want to go into, but he has to challenge their misconceptions because you understand that these Athenians thought they knew God or gods. And there were three groups. There were the basic people with the basic education. They tended to worship all the gods. They had 30,000 gods. They were scared of all of them. They thought, and here's the thing. Here's the thing the average Athenian thought. We have all these gods. We have to take care of them. These gods all want something from us. These gods want food. They want money. So they would bring all kinds of precious things, and they would leave them at the altar because they were scared that if they didn't have the influence of these gods in their life, that they would be disadvantaged in some way. And on top of that, these gods, they, they were specialists. You know, there was a god of rain. There was a god of sex. There was a god of money. There was a god of health. There was a god, I mean, there was a god for everything. They all had their little compartments. So for the average Athenian, they had to come take care of their gods. And then there were Epicureans that we talked about last week. And the Epicureans, they, they weren't really all that spiritual. They were basically atheists. Their idea was just to go through life with as little pain as possible. Their idea of the gods were they're disinterested. They don't really care. They neither help us nor harm us. Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheistics. They thought that everything was God. And they thought that God was draconian and severe and that their lives had already been ordered, and God did not care about them, and that human beings were unimportant, and the best thing you could do in life was to put on your big boy pants and your big girl pants and just find some way to deal with it. If the Stoics had a way of thinking or if they had a mantra, it would be either it is what it is or deal with it. And by the way, there are a lot of Epicureans and Stoics yet today, aren't there? How many people do we know their whole life is built around just avoiding pain, just avoiding anything difficult? Or how many people do we know that are very disciplined and it's like, just deal with it? But the only problem was all these people, as varied as their concepts were about God, didn't know the true God. That's why, you know, I think about America today because I see so many people like this in America. Their people have a strange concept of God. It's as if they have to support their God somehow. And then there are people that have an idea, well, I don't really think God exists. It's all about having fun. And then there are people that just say life is all about working hard and, and being disciplined. And Paul stood before these people and said, I've come to tell you about the unknown God, the God you don't know. Guys, I want to tell you something here today. I don't even know if you could call this a sermon. But I have a passion. And my passion is this. I want the 6,000 or so people who attend New Spring. I don't want anybody to walk away from any of our four services and not know God. I don't want any of the people who watch us online today to not know God. I don't, know, I don't want any of the people who watch us on television to not know God. I have a service this week for a lady. I've never met her. I've never met any of her family. But she watched us on television, and some of her final words were to ask if, if I would preach her service, and I'm going to preach it this week. And I'm looking forward to meeting that family. I, I know that there will be thousands of people who will listen to this frail talk that I'm going to bring today. I, it may not be articulate. It, it may not be a great message, but my concern is that you will know the true God. I don't want anybody to walk out of here and to know a caricature. I mean, here's the thing. Someone could say to me, you know, someone could say, well, Mark, it's not all that important that you know Mary Alice. Look, I've got a picture of Mary Alice. It's just as good. No, it's not. Or somebody could draw a stick figure and draw a hair on it and say, this is just as good. And I'm saying, no, that's not Mary Alice. See, some, some of us have had that experience with God. Somebody drew a picture for us. Maybe it was in church. 
and said, this is God, but it wasn't the true God. Maybe somebody drew a stick figure and said, this is God. And all this time, maybe you've gotten an idea that God hates you or God is harsh or God is demanding or somehow you've got to keep God afloat. My prayer is that you will know God when this is all over. Now, when Paul talks to this audience, he realizes that he's talking to a very secular audience. And he doesn't teach this sermon the way he would if he was talking to a Jewish audience, which would have been his own people. He understands that they're Gentile and very secular. So he, he introduces God, and this is something that's very important for us. And I'm going to ask you, would you just please hold on through this message? Because it could be at some point there's going to be a deal breaker for you. But please just hold on anyway. He presents God four ways. And what you must understand, it's almost as though we are going through a channel and there are four locks that we have to go through. And at any point, if we refuse to know God on one of these levels, it's a deal breaker. I just love you enough that I got to tell you, it's a deal breaker. And so my prayer is that you and I will just hear what he has to say, weigh it. And if you walk away and say, I don't want to know God, then clearly that, that's, a, that's a credible decision but I do want you to know who the true God is. Let's read. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as the unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who, number one, made the world and everything in it, being number two, Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Number three, since he, number four, gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. If you would like to know God today, let me introduce him to you and say first and foremost, that on his business card is the, excuse me, the word creator. If you would know God, <coughs> excuse me, you must know him as the source and the first cause of everything. You know, uh, I've heard people say through the years that God never attempts to prove that he created the world. But even that statement itself is backwards because to God, creation is proof of his existence. This morning in my devotions, I was reading Job chapter 12, and verse 7 and 8. Job said, go talk to the birds, go talk to the fish, go talk to the animals, talk to the earth, and it will teach you, has not God made all these things? God believes that the world itself and the natural order is proof of himself. Of course, we're, this is all about Athens. I want to go back a few hundred years before Paul's encounter with the Athenians and one of the great Greek minds, Plato, said this, God continually geometrizes. I love that statement. What, what Plato was saying is creation is filled with precise and ingenious patterns that randomness cannot produce. There are those who say, well, and I've got friends who are non-theists and we dialogue and debate together. And my friends who are non-theists will say something like this to me. Mark, if God will prove that he created the earth, I will believe in him. I'm not sure I really accept that. But in any event, let me just read to you what Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says, so that we will know how God feels about this whole dialogue. God says they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. In other words, when you look at the natural order of things, we understand the nature of God. We know that God is good. I mean, first of all, wasn't he nice to do the earth and earth tones? I mean, you know, just think about the, the things that God has put into our world. I, I, I every once in a while go over to Discovery, and they always have fruit out there, and there's grapes and strawberries. And I'm thinking, I couldn't eat a grape and be an atheist. Man, this dessert just comes packaged and everything. See, so God is saying, look, from creation, 
We not only see his power, but we understand his nature. And so, let me finish. The Bible says in Romans 1, they have no excuse for not knowing God. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, and and oftentimes in friendly dialogues, Mark, you Christians are anti-science. Nothing could be further from the truth. I love science. And could I say to my bottom-up, intelligent friends who believe the world got here in its natural order without any intelligent first cause, could I say to all my friends who believe that, I think science paints you into a corner. I love science. Because the more I learn about science, the more I learn about God. But my friends who don't believe in intelligent first cause will tell me that the idea that there is an intelligent designer, that that is not scientific because it cannot be scientific. Because the moment we talk about an intelligent first cause, that's not science, it's religion. So therefore, it doesn't matter about the science of probabilities. It doesn't matter about how that in every other area of science, anytime we see a building, it demands a builder. Any other time we see a design, it demands a designer. Anytime we see purpose, it demands an engineer. Strangely enough, science tells us that in every other area except origins. And so, my friends, who, who tell me that God is not scientific, that is not a scientific statement within itself. It is a semantic statement. It is, it's a statement of nomenclature. See, God can't be the answer. It doesn't matter what science points to. God, by definition, can't be the answer. And so many of my friends who, who believe in you know, bottom-up intelligence and, and godless evolution, they, they tell me things like this. They say, you are anti-science. And they say to me, Aren't you, don't you feel like you're alone on an island because the predominant amount of scientists don't believe in God? Well, don't expect me to be surprised that the house always wins if the game is rigged. The game is rigged. See, God can never be the answer because it's not scientific. It's circular and semantic. If you would know God today, it starts by acknowledging him as creator. It doesn't mean that we understand everything about creation. I don't know how God did it. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he explained it to us in simple terms that we could process. I don't know how God created the earth. If he, if he talked to us and gave us the actual science behind it, it would be so far ahead of our current science today as current science is to alchemy. But we must understand, here's the thing, with all of our brilliance in science, we don't make anything. We don't create anything. We just discover what's already here. When Watson and Crick found that long molecule, they didn't make DNA. They just discovered the DNA that had been here since creation. I'm for them winning the award. I love the study of it, but we don't make DNA. The long helix that has the ability to replicate and all the information for every cell in our body, how amazing is that? If you think about the DNA and the zygote, we, we, we don't discover, we don't, we don't make anything, we just discover what's already here. We use the materials already provided for us. We don't make anything, we just discover and manipulate what is already here. With all of our intellectualism, we don't make up the principles of mathematics or physics or chemistry. We just discover what is already here. 
This week, I was reading about the, the skeletal structure of birds. And it is amazing, the design of the skeletal structure of birds. Birds, of course, need to be light so they can fly. Bird bones are hollow. And they have struts in them, almost like you see an aircraft. And air pockets. I mean, a bird's feathers usually weigh more than its skeletal structure. And my friends who believe in bottom-up intelligence will say to me, well, that happened over millions of years, and it's just an adaptation to its circumstances. Birds need to fly. And at some point, I guess millions of years ago, birds said the reason we can't fly is our bones are too heavy. We need to work on that. <laughs> so a bird is thinking about how am I going to how am I going to have lighter wings? They thought it through. First of all, if anybody ever calls you a bird brain, you tell them thank you very much, because <laughs> that's a lot of intelligence. We got to have lighter wings. And so I'm sure that one generation of birds worked on it, and one bird said, "Son or daughter, this is as far as we could get with you. You have to take it in your generation." Millions of years, they kept the project going. And that's the predominant theory. Sometimes I think we are flipping living on Mars, honestly, just to be honest. And all joking aside, and I mean this in seriousness, I know that it can be a deal breaker. It could be someone who would say, I just do not believe in a God who created. And I understand that. But it is a deal breaker. If you would know God, well, let me read it to you the way the psalmist said it. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The sea belongs to him, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. It is like an algebraic equation. I cannot claim that he is my God and not claim that he is my maker. Those are equal statements that pivot. If I am to bow before my God, he must be my maker. If he did not make me, he is not my God. Whatever made me is my God. If I am the product of accident, then I must bow before accident because accident and chance and randomness is my God. But I will not bow before accident, randomness, and chance. I do not care if the rest of the world does bow down before it. I have a God, and I know him, and he made me. I will worship him. I will bow before him, regardless of what all the intellectual elite of our culture say. I will not back down. He is my maker, and he is my God, and I must know him as creator if I will know him as God. Number two, Paul said, he's Lord. If he is creator then it makes sense and it follows that he is Lord. Probably the closest word we have in English to Lord is boss. And God is boss of, Lord and, uh, of heaven and earth. Someone has said there is a throne in the life of all of us, and this is spiritually speaking, but there's a throne in everyone's heart and something sits on that throne. For many of us, we ourselves sit on that throne. We determine what we're going to do. Or it could be that someone else sits on the throne of our lives. Or it could be that we have some idol in our lives that sits on the throne. I know of people that sex sits on their throne and they worship it and they can't, even, they can't even get it off the throne even though they try to get it off the throne. There are some people money sits on the throne of their lives. 
But the only person who has a legitimate claim to that throne is God because he is Lord. See, here's the thing. Throughout my life, I've heard people say, you need to make God Lord of your life. And I know what they're saying, but that's a wrong statement. God is Lord of my life. The issue is, do I recognize him or do I not recognize him? Someday I will. Because scripture says that there will come a day in, in judgment where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ, the Lord, to the glory of God. But the thing is, I want to worship him as Lord today. I want to know him. So if I, if I want to know him, I must know him first of all as creator. And then secondly, Paul said, he is Lord. Could be talking to somebody here today and you're saying, Mark, I'm, my deal is broken right now. I am not going to have a God who is Lord of my life. I'm going to be Lord of my life. First of all, I want to say thank you for being honest. I don't agree with your choice, but I respect you for being honest. You know, Jesus talked about people in the church. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, and do not what I say? But can I tell you how I feel? I don't want a God who's not Lord. Why would you even have a God that's not Lord? If he's not Lord of heaven and earth, why would you have him or her, it or they, or for, I mean, here's the deal. If your God can't control the elements, if your God is not greater than this life, why even have a God in the first place? I need a God who is Lord of heaven and earth and Lord of sickness and death. I must hurry. Number three, the third thing about God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This one may be a little complicated. Let me do my best to explain it. Number one, if you would know God, you must know him as creator. Number two, if you would know God, you must know him as Lord. The third thing is God is self-sufficient. See, the Athenians believed they had to keep their gods afloat. They had to bring them stuff. This goes back to the book of Exodus when God called Moses. And Moses said to God, I, I don't know your name. How am I going to tell the people who sent me? And God said to Moses this, I am who I am. This is what to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Well, have you ever read that and wondered, what does God mean by I am has sent you? What that is is the Hebrew word for meaning self-existent one. I'm not self-existent, nor are you self-existent. I'm totally dependent on God to keep me alive. I cannot prove to you I'll be alive in 24 hours. God keeps me alive. God keeps you alive. God is totally self-sustaining. And because of that, he doesn't need anything from anyone. He doesn't need a temple made by hands. He doesn't need anything that anyone brings to him because God is totally self-sufficient. Why is that important? Do you remember at the beginning of this message I said, whoever loves you the most, if you never knew that person, there would be a hole commensurate with that size? Well, if you don't know God, you're going to need something real big to put in his place. For some of us, it's religion. For others of us, it's sex. For others of us, it's money. For others of us, it's the accolades or the approval of our friends. Whatever, well, if you don't know God, you're going to have to stuff something in that hole. But there's some issues with having an idol. There's some issues with having something that is a God substitute. The first issue is you will always wind up slavishly serving it. See, that's the wonderful thing about having God in your life is if you have God in your life, as we're going to see on the fourth thing, he's always bringing to you. He is self-sufficient. But anything that you and I make, cram in that hole, well, here's what the Bible says in Galatians 4. When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature 
not God's. You could walk out of here today and say, Mark, the deal's been broken at Creator. The deal was broken at Lord. The deal's broken. I don't want God. Well, here's what I know about you. You're a slave to something. I don't know what it is, but if you'll look real carefully, you're a slave to something. It may be a, it may, you may be a slave to fear. You may be a slave to approval, but you're a slave to something. Because anybody who doesn't know God is a slave. We put something there that's not a real God. I mean, you know, in Isaiah 44, God just reasons with people about idols. He said, the person who made the idol never stops to realize, watch, well, just a block of wood. I, turned, I, you know, I burned half of it for heat. I used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. Look at this. He trusts something that can't help him at all, yet he can't bring himself to ask, is this idol I'm holding in my hand a lie? Anything that you and I stuff in that hole that's a substitute for God, you're going to be a slave to it, and the worst part about it, would you trust me on this one? Someday in your life, you're going to hit the wall, and when you hit the wall, whatever you stuffed in that hole to take the place of God, it cannot help you. I know of people who stuff a sports team into that hole. Their whole life is the Lakers or the Cowboys or the Chiefs. God, God help you if it's the Chiefs. I, <laughs> I'm just saying, anything you stuff in that hole and, and you know what? People never stop to ask, is this, is this our God? I don't have time to tell the story, but it is on my mind today. And I think it's what drove me to bring this, this talk. Many of you know my dad passed into eternity about a month ago. And my world is a strange world sometimes, and I ask you just a little license to talk to you about it. Because when dad died, I think I just lost myself in details, decisions that had to be made. My dad died on a Tuesday morning, and they called me, and I didn't get there in time. He'd already passed by the time I got to St. Francis. And so instantly I began to do what I do. I went to a room and started working on details because I knew we need to have a funeral here, we need to have a funeral in Texas, but I was scheduled to speak in one of America's largest churches on Sunday and so I went to that room and began to plan a service here, talk to the mortuary and see if we could make all the arrangements, and, and then started working on my flight plans to fly to Atlanta on Friday after the funeral here, and then, and then working on the flight plan out of Atlanta to Austin on Sunday night, and, and the shipment of my dad's body to make sure it got there in time. So I just started working on all these details. And I think, to be honest with you, I avoided the grief like so many of us do if you're a doer, fixer, type A personality. I just lost myself in details, and that was the way it was for the next few days. And on Friday when we had my dad's service here, you understand my world is kind of strange in the sense that not only was I conducting the funeral services I've done a thousand times, I'm also a son. And I stood here and I preached my dad's service and then walked down as I do at every funeral service and stand at the head of the casket while people filed by and I wound up greeting people. And it was an almost surreal moment because this is my dad's casket and here I am greeting people as though I do, I do a normal funeral service. 
But I don't think I even thought much about the viewing that day because I knew there would be another funeral service in Texas. And so I flew out that afternoon, flew to Atlanta, and actually made visits for that church on Saturday afternoon. And Sunday I preached all the services. By the way, thank you for all of you who prayed for me that day because I was totally exhausted, and yet God, God bless in a wonderful way. But that night, exhausted, I flew out to Austin and got to Austin about midnight, and then another 45, 50 minutes to get to burn it and got a few hours sleep and got up the next morning and again began to work on details from my dad's funeral there and, uh, and then went through the service, I preached the service, stood at the head of the casket while people come by. Even my own family had come by the casket and I was still standing at the head of the casket and at that moment, there always comes a moment, I know that most of you never see this at a funeral service, but there comes a moment when everybody has followed by the casket and even the family, and so the auditorium is pretty empty, and I'm usually left there alone with the funeral directors, and they're folding things into the casket and closing the casket, and I'm getting ready to walk out and lead the casket out to the coach. But at this particular moment, I'd been through all this with two services now and, and just kind of had lost myself in details. And I'd actually walked over to take my wireless microphone off and set it down. And while I was doing that, they closed the casket. And I realized I'd not had a moment to come by the casket myself. So I asked the funeral director if he would open it back up. I said, open up the casket again. And I knelt down beside my dad's casket. And I held on him for a few moments. I just looked into his face. And I knew my dad was already with the Lord. But I also had that moment where I realized for the last time in this world, I was looking into the face of the man I love the most in the world. And I remember as I knelt there, I looked up to the director and I said, close it. And I watched as that lid closed, and it closed in that split second, and I watched, I watched his face disappear as the lid closed. And I remember thinking to myself at that moment, how do people who don't know God deal with moments like this? If you do not know God and you do not need him today, then it may be easy for you to walk away from this message. But someday you will need a God who is creator. Someday you will need a God who is Lord. Someday you will need a God who is self-sustaining. And number four, someday you will need a God who gives, who gives everything. Do you know him? How can you know God? You can know God through a person. God came into our world once, and he became human, and he lived the perfect life that we can't live, and then he lay on a Roman cross, and the blood that came out of his body became a currency for our sins. God, here's the thing, God requires perfection, but as I preached in the series on grace, what God requires, he supplies. He knows you and I can't be perfect, so he came into our world and was perfect for us. And then he was punished as though he had committed every sin you and I have ever committed so that any of us who by faith come to Jesus Christ can have our sins washed away and be perfect in God's sight and actually be recreated in him. Would you like to know God? You can. I'm going to pray a prayer that reaches out for him because the Bible says he gives. You don't have to earn this. God's self-sufficient. But if you're willing to reach out to God, he will hear your prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you mean them, you can pray them with me. You ready? Dear God, I want to know you. I believe you're creator. I don't understand everything about it, but I believe you're the source. 
I receive you as Lord. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. God, I want to know you. Jesus, I trust you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you may not understand everything about what happened to you, so I want to help you. When you came in, you got the talk to us card. There's a little place in there you can just say, I prayed to receive Christ. If you'll come back to guest services, the big one out in the lobby, the little one back by the coffee shop, I have a gift for you. There's a DVD in here and a book I wrote and a coupon for a new Bible. If you just prayed to receive Christ, please come get that. Nobody will hassle you. We just want to give it to you. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Can't wait for next week's Signs of Life. We'll see you soon.